And now, the news from Zarahemla, a small town in southern Utah. Bilby Farnsworth liked funerals. He always had. As a boy, his favorite part was the food afterwards. There always seemed to be a plethoric selection of funeral potatoes, some made with freshly shredded potato, ricotta cheese, a sprinkling of fine sharp cheddar, and topped with crumbled smoked bacon and homemade croutons, while others used partially freezer-burned tater tots, a mixture of cream cheese, Campbell's cream of mushroom soup, and a cup or two of canned nacho cheese topped with crumbled cornflakes. Even though Bilby's mother had raised him to appreciate fresh, natural foods, somehow, as a boy, he was always drawn to the latter recipe. There was something comforting in the taste of the processed cheese not quite fully blended with chunks of cream soup and lumps of cream cheese. The tater tots were usually delightfully crunchy on the outside, yet a little watery and undercooked in the center. If such a dish was prepared with less culinary skill than some, it was still prepared with love, and Bilby craved those flavors whenever he sat listening to obituaries and remembrances of the dead. However, Bilby knew that despite his nostalgic longings and hunger pains, his wife, Joy, following today's service, would steer him away from the cultural hall where the food was always served. He understood that she was just watching over him, protecting his health, but that didn't make his yearning any less acute. As Bilby looked around, he saw everyone wearing masks and sitting in distanced clumps throughout the chapel. He remembered now that because of the pandemic, the meal would only be offered to the immediate family of the deceased. Bilby's frustration began to increase, not because he wouldn't get funeral potatoes, but because his memory was failing him again. He knew that his deteriorating memory had been the greatest trial in his wife's life over the past six years, and he hated it when he became forgetful or disoriented. In fact, right now, he couldn't even remember whose funeral this was. Gary Grimshaw had spent the morning planning a romantic gesture. Romantic gestures were often a dangerous thing. The potential for making an utter fool of yourself was extremely high. But Gary figured that since, during his first encounter with Samantha Johns, she found him in his pajamas throwing a childish tantrum while stomping up and down in a pile of sheep dung, things couldn't get worse. Sam had no listed number. Gary wasn't sure he would have wanted to call her anyway. He preferred surprising her. Therein lied the danger. Maybe she didn't like surprises. Some people valued privacy above all, and she might not like someone just showing up at her doorstep. But fortune favors the bold. Gary had no car. Paying off his tuition for his film degree was all he could manage financially at the moment. He could borrow his father's car, but he really didn't want Dad to know the details of his romantic exploits. Besides, he felt it might be more classically romantic to show up on a bicycle. So Gary set out on his journey. He began by riding down into Zarahemla proper and stopping at Bob's Main Street Market. Gary had called Bob's widow, Laura Gardner, the night before. Laura had taken charge of the market after Bob passed seven years ago. 
She had started offering flowers for sale a couple of years ago, but the availability of good longstem roses was not always consistent. However, she had promised Gary that she would have a dozen red waiting for him. Long ago, Gary had fitted a box to the back frame of his bike. He brought bungee cords to lash the vase in place. He figured that as long as he rode at a moderate pace and avoided potholes and rough patches, that the flowers would weather the trip. Cleavon and Clarissa Carter had recently moved to Zarahemla from Antimony. They received a very generous offer for their ranch there, and since their children were grown and out of the house, and they were both now in their fifties and ranch chores were becoming a little more painful every day, the enticement to retire from ranching and pursue other interests was greater than the desire to hang on to the memories that permeated their ranch house. They purchased what their new neighbors referred to as the Lambert House. Lincoln and Felicia Lambert built the home in 1956. Lincoln had been wounded in combat in Korea. After spending two and a half years convalescing, he eventually regained full mobility in his legs and left arm and 70% motion in his right arm. His sweetheart was often at his side during that period, and she patiently waited for him as he prepared himself to take on the world again. They were married in 1955 and lived with her parents for a few months while Lincoln worked to open a hardware store and build an attached residence for his wife and future family. Lambert Hardware became a mainstay business in Zarahemla. As the business prospered, Lincoln and Felicia secured a storefront on Main Street that allowed for expansion. Eventually, he turned the original store space into a living room and an extra bedroom. They raised three children in that house. Lincoln passed in 2010. Felicia sold the hardware store, which is now called Louty Hardware and Sporting Goods. She has lived alone now for a decade, but has been showing signs of dementia, so her middle son, Tom, arranged to have her move to a care facility in West Valley City near his home in Salt Lake and put the family home up for sale. The Carters loved the charm of the house as soon as they saw it. After learning of the original store space design on the main floor, they decided it would be perfect for their plans to create an antique and craft shop. Cleavon and Clarissa's youngest son, Jaden, had recently returned home from his freshman year at the University of Utah, and like so many young minds inundated with worldly philosophies, he came home determined to teach his parents that they were the problem. He found opportunities to berate his parents for tolerating the local culture, a culture that is woefully non-diverse, a culture that seemingly refuses to recognize its inherent biases, a culture that seems stuck in traditional gender roles, a culture that is blind to its many microaggressive behaviors toward people of color or gender fluidity. And you are part of the problem, Jaden informed his parents, by not challenging the people in this community and demanding that they change their speech, their perceptions, and their belief about culture, and guiding them to recognize and accept their intrinsic bigotry and their white privilege. You are the problem. Cleavon's first impulse was to take Jaden out to the proverbial woodshed, but a look of love and pleading patience from Clarissa checked his anger, and instead he told his son that he would consider and pray about Jaden's words. Cleavon did pray, and he and Clarissa counseled together about how to guide their son back to a disposition of empathy 
compassion, and humility. It's not that the Carters had never experienced bigotry and small-mindedness among their neighbors. They had. But they had also experienced and observed remarkable acts of kindness and selfless love, and a desire, even among the few who seemed ignorant of racial parity, to form a united community, and a willingness towards self-evaluation and reformation. In the Carters' experience, most people, especially those raised in this area, had malleable hearts and minds and a deep desire to be good. So Clarissa and Cleavon agreed to a plan of patience and love in trying to guide their boy. Gary was halfway along his three-mile journey when he realized that most of the trip was uphill. This meant that he would probably arrive sweaty and disheveled. Oh well, maybe she would think that romantic as well. Suddenly, a gust of wind hit Gary so hard that he swerved and had to struggle to keep the bike on the road. He looked up and saw the blackest, fastest-moving clouds he had ever seen outside of a Spielberg film. He wasn't sure whether he should turn back or go on, but chose to continue. He found himself fighting the wind at first and began to regret his decision, but suddenly the wind shifted and was now pushing him onward. Thunder and lightning soon joined the fray. Then sheets of rain came down, completely soaking Gary in only seconds. He wondered briefly if this was a warning. Perhaps this woman or the pursuit of this woman would ruin him. No, this was just an obstacle, something that would discourage a common man, but Gary knew that he couldn't behave like a common man if he wanted to be worthy of the goddess known as Sam. Bilby found himself in awe and a bit fearful of the sounds around him. The voices around him were singing, Be Still My Soul, while from outside came the ominous noises of wall-shaking thunder and roof-pounding rain and hail. Most voices in the congregation were drowned out by the storm, although Zim Cadencia could always be heard, as he always sang with passion and mastery. Mixing with the cacophony were Bilby's realizations that he and Joy were sitting on the row reserved for the family of the deceased— and that his general cognitive awareness seemed sharper today than he remembered it being for a long time. He tested himself by listing in his head his children's and grandchildren's names and birthdates. The facts flowed through his mind easily. He wanted to reach out to Joy and show off his acumen, but he knew he shouldn't interrupt the mood. His thoughts leapt past his memory games and began to speculate as to the significance of all the sensory input he was experiencing. Why had the typical muddiness in his mind dissipated? Why was the usually constant aching in his legs and shoulders gone? Were the storm sounds real or in his mind? Why had Joy not looked at him or reached for his hand since the service began? And who was in the coffin that lay in front of him? Darling, was the distressed and lingering cry from Clarissa Robinson. Cleavon and Jaden came bounding down the stairs from where they had been shifting furniture in the master bedroom. 
Jaden led the way with a look of protective masculinity on his face as he leapt four stairs at a time, seeking out the source of his mother's affliction. Clarissa met Jaden at the bottom step, verbally and physically helping him to stop before he hit the stream of water running across the floor. Cleavon also stopped short and began assessing the situation in the living room that was once a hardware store. The Lamberts had never replaced the front door. They had simply put curtains over the glass shop door and removed the auto-closer and bell. Over the years, the rubber seal on the door's threshold had broken down, leaving an almost half-inch gap where currently a tributary was forming, part of the hundred-year storm river that was moving down 2nd North Street. Lucky for the Carters, the only furniture that had been moved into the house was upstairs. The rest was in a storage trailer parked behind the house. Clavon ran to a box in the next room where he had stuffed a bag of shop rags. He took the rags and began to stuff them in the gap under the door. The flow slowed to just a trickle, and they watched through the glass as the newly formed Second North Creek flowed past for another three minutes and then slowly began to slacken. Gary had given up trying to ride in this torrent. He pushed the bike as he splashed along the road. At last, he arrived at the driveway to Sam's ranch house. It was a gravel road in need of a new gravel treatment. There was as much mud as gravel showing. He had to focus on finding firm steps, and dragging the bike along was no longer worth the effort. Gary grabbed what was left of the flowers and laid the bike at the edge of the driveway. A stream always crossed the driveway and was normally two to three inches deep. Today it had grown to a depth of more than two feet. The fates seemed to be against him. Six feet two inches tall, Gary felt confident that he could trek through a two-foot stream. A large rock that edged the driveway was only a few inches below the water, so he tried hopping to it, but the second his foot touched down... It slid to the side, twisted his ankle, and sent him tumbling down the river. He spluttered and floundered, still grasping firmly to the flower stems, but afraid of his lack of footing. Unable to get purchase for more than a minute, Gary began to despair, thinking his passion for romance had led to his demise, when suddenly a rope fell across his chest. Not caring about the source of this miracle, Gary grabbed hold and felt the line stiffen. Soon he was able to plant his feet and begin pulling himself and the flower stems out of the water on the ranch side. At the other end of the rope was a soaked-to-the-skin goddess with her overwhelming smile. "'You saved me,' muttered Gary. "'You needed saving,' answered Sam. Unsure what to do next, Gary suddenly thrust the rose stems toward Sam. Half a rose remained on the stem in the center of the bunch— the rest had been washed or blown away. Sam smiled and stroked the petals against her wet cheek. Gary couldn't stop now. With visions of George Papard and Audrey Hepburn kissing in the rain and breakfast at Tiffany's, Gary wrapped his hand around Sam's head and pulled her into a passionate kiss. Bishop Blaine Packer was thanking the speakers and musicians and sharing his own remembrances of the deceased and his testimony of the afterlife. Bilby was focusing on building up his courage to reach for Joy's hand and didn't process the name that the bishop had referred to in talking about the deceased. No matter. 
Bilby was slowly accepting that the evidence before him was a testament of Bilby's own demise. A wave of sorrow rolled over him at the notion of being separated from his joy for what could be decades. But then he silently berated himself for his utter selfishness. He had brought her such hardship for so long. He should be joyous that her burden would be lifted. He stopped his struggle to reach for Joy's hand. He would accept his circumstances and allow Joy both her mourning process and the personal freedom she deserved. After the bishop sat down and Sister Marchant began playing the closing hymn, Executive Secretary Adam McKinley slipped into the dais, sat next to the bishop, and began whispering something in his ear. After a heartfelt benediction given by Sister Lavana Robeson, Bishop Packer stood once again and gave a special announcement. The storm has caused some flooding on the road into the cemetery, so the funeral home has made a plan to reconvene either this evening or tomorrow morning for the graveside service, dependent upon the circumstances. Notices will be sent out to family members and ward members via email. The bishop then went on to announce that, while flooding has affected some streets in Zarahemla, our brothers and sisters in several neighborhoods in Cedar City and Enoch have been hit hard. I feel impressed to encourage you, first, to ensure that your own family and property are safe, and then, if your circumstances allow, join us as we caravan to offer our service to those that most need it. We will gather again here in the church parking lot in one hour. I'm sorry, shouted Gary over the sound of dying thunder. I hope not, Coop, answered Sam. Come with me. I still have most of my husband's old clothes. Something should fit. And Sam took Gary by the hand and walked him leisurely through the lessening rain and up the steps of the ranch house. Jaden was flabbergasted. Although he would never use that word to describe how he felt, it's a word his mother used occasionally, he was totally amazed at the message from the bishopric that he was reading to his father from his father's phone. Cleavon had left his phone on the newel post at the top of the basement stairs while he was hooking up the hose to his shop vac to begin sucking up the half foot of water that had settled in the basement. The basement was unfinished with cement floors and walls, so any damage would be minimal. How can they ask such a thing? shouted Jaden. We've got our own flood, and they want us to drive an hour away and clean up somebody else's house? Jeez! I'd like to go, and I hope you'll come with me, said Cleavon. You don't even know these people, answered Jaden. I'm not going to leave Mom with this huge mess. What are you thinking? I'm not helpless, son, chimed in Clarissa. I can have this cleaned up and have a nice supper waiting for you two when you get back home. Jaden paused just a little too long to come up with an answer. By the time he thought of something to say, Dad was already tossing him a pair of gloves and boots, and Mom was handing him a raincoat and hat. He sighed and followed Dad out to their pickup. Bilby watched as his joy stood next to the casket, kissed her fingertips, and then pressed those fingers to the casket top. As a tear rolled down her cheek, Bilby felt tears in his own eyes. 
He'd always wondered if a spirit separated from its body could or would spill tears. Now he knew. Bilby suddenly jumped, startled by a hand being rested on his shoulder. This must be it. He wondered which of his departed loved ones had come to get him. He turned his head, and there was Sister Anderton looking right at him. Before Bilby could recollect hearing any news about Sister Anderton passing, she sat on the bench next to him and began expressing how sorry she was for his loss. She explained that during the past couple of years she had lost both her husband and her favorite cousin, so she understood how he must feel. She squeezed his hand and said, Thomas was such a good soul, but I'm sure he is happy to be back with his Martha. Thomas! Joy's older brother Thomas was gone. Bilby had known this, but his memory had failed him once again throughout this ceremony. So much for improved cognitive awareness. He had managed to tap into part of his long-term memory, but had completely forgotten the reason he was here. Joy was thanking Sister Anderton and would soon turn to him. Bilby was embarrassed, even though no one could possibly know what he had been thinking. Now all he wanted was to say the right thing to comfort his wife. He wanted to tell her how glad he was to have a little more time with her. He wanted to reassure her that her sorrow would pass and that her understanding would increase. He wanted her to know how much he loved her and that he believed that she was perfectly named, for she brought joy to him and to everyone she knew. Joy took Bilby's arm, and as they walked together through the chapel aisle, all that Bilby managed to say was, You should eat some funeral potatoes. Joy stopped, turned to Bilby with that indomitable smile of hers, kissed her husband, and with a single tear spilling out of her eye, responded, Yes, my sweetheart. Yes, let's do that. Jaden was on edge during the ride to Cedar City. He wanted to scream at his father for the stupidity he was displaying. Hadn't Dad always taught that family comes first? Here they were abandoning Mom to deal with their own family disaster while they went off to help strangers. Who does that? Several times, Jaden almost spoke up to say, Dad, I don't have anything against service. You've told me a hundred times that service is the rent we pay for being on this earth. I get it. But we should be taking care of our own, not a bunch of closed-minded... Dad interrupted his thoughts by saying, How about some music? As he reached for the media console. I know you, Dad. You probably have some hymns ready to play about putting your shoulder to the wheel. Well, then, you pick something out, countered Cleavon. But make sure it's something with a melody, not just someone cursing and shouting. I've got you, Dad, said Jaden as he picked out a Tupac song entitled Unconditional Love. Cleavon was surprised. This is more my generation than yours, he said. I just didn't want you thinking that I didn't know, answered Jaden. But I still think you're the problem. Cleavon bristled a bit, but then just smiled and said, This is going to be a great day, son. And that's the news from Zarahemla, where love and laughter are served at every meal, 
where safe sex means slipping on a wedding ring, and where everyone is a best friend.